Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. Did a lot of people go downstairs? See, it seems like there's a lot of people in my group. That's okay. All right. It's raining. Okay. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're right into Acts chapter 2. Our Father in heaven, Lord God, we rejoice, Lord God, that the, the message of salvation from your holy word reached us. And like the lyrics of that hymn said, there are some who have never heard the message of salvation from your own holy word. And Lord, the passage of Scripture we read today points to like that first time after Christ had ascended back to heaven that, that the, the preaching of the message of salvation from your holy word began. And we know that's a ministry that's still going on. A ministry that has been passed down to us. And our prayer, Lord God, is that you would help us to receive what is encouraging about this great chapter in the book of Acts. That we would be encouraged, Lord God, to be the church and be your ambassadors, Lord, to this world that needs to hear the message of salvation from your holy word. Help us to use our time and our resources and everything that you have, Lord God, given to us and called us to to reach out with the gospel of Christ. We thank you for this time together, Lord. We pray that you would be exalted in the preaching of your word and that even if there's someone sitting here today who needs to receive that message of salvation, that you, Lord God, would open their hearts to receive it today, for it's very clear. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your wonderful salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I am in Acts chapter 2, I uh, will, will tell you, in part because what I want to do is enter into a study of the book of James, and I was prepared to start that this morning, and I admit that like at the last minute, I was kind of wooed away from it, I think by the Lord, because, uh, well, definitely by the Lord, because in part, there's parts of what it says in James chapter 1, that I just want to like kind of read through and, and, and just kind of do a little more thinking through, uh, even though I've thought about that chapter many times over the years. But part of it also, uh, I'll tell you, was I told you last week that I just really enjoyed the, uh, the Easter season around here and the, uh, the Palm Sunday message and then the message of the empty tomb. And then we took it last week to the, the message of the Lord's ascension into heaven and the promise of his return. And I've done that in years past and kind of always stopped there. But then for today, I've decided to take it one more week. Like, like Acts chapter 1, they're told to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which they had heard from him. And they were told, you know, uh, that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And they asked, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he said, that's not even for you to know, Right? 
but you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And then we kind of, and I've done that in years past, and we kind of stopped there. But here we get into chapter 2, and chapter 2 is where that promise that Jesus made is most immediately fulfilled. This is the moment where the Holy Spirit came. And God's Holy Spirit has been active in the world since and including the creation of the world. You're first introduced to the Holy Spirit in the account of creation when we're told that He hovered above the surface of the waters and He was involved, right? And throughout the Old Testament, you would periodically see the Holy Spirit come upon someone uh, for the purpose of, of preaching or doing some great thing in God's name. And then when John the Baptist came, we're told that, that uh, he was baptizing in water, but there was one coming after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then when Jesus came, Jesus spoke very openly and freely of the Comforter who would come, of the Spirit who would come. And then you get to this point, And, you know, the thing that many preachers and theologians have pointed out, which is correct, is that the unique thing about the ministry of God's Holy Spirit that begins right here in Acts chapter 2, where I'm going to read, and continues with you and I today, who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, is that it's not like you read prior to this where the Holy Spirit would just come upon someone for some specific purpose. The New Testament teaches that now that Christ has fulfilled that, uh, that task that the Father assigned to Him to come and to die for our sins and rise from the dead and ascend back to heaven, now the Holy Spirit, listen to this, comes and permanently indwells all of God's children. And so that's why in the New Testament you see all of these commands to be filled with the Spirit, to not quench the Spirit, to not grieve the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. The reason those commands are given to Christians is because Christians have been sealed with the presence of God's Holy Spirit in them. We've been sealed with the Spirit unto the day of redemption. God's presence... In us, that's the Holy Spirit. God's presence in us is His seal upon us that we are His and we are kept by His power and by His grace all the way to the end. And the promise which Jesus spoke of, the promise of God sending His Holy Spirit began to be fulfilled here at this moment where we're reading in Acts chapter 2. It's one of the great chapters in the Bible. One of the great chapters of the New Testament. It is a chapter that points out a few things. Uh, what the, my, what I, in the beginning of the chapter, you get that it's short, but it's significant. Description of how the Holy Spirit comes upon them and comes and sits upon them and how they are instantly touched and they have this power and they speak in tongues and and a crowd is drawn. But then the real meat of all of this is the middle part of the chapter. And that's what I really want to dig into is the sermon that Peter preaches, which is a beautiful 
and, and brilliant and obviously Holy Spirit-led exposition of a couple of passages of the Old Testament from the book of Joel and from the book of Psalms, making the case that Jesus, the Messiah, the Messiah himself, needed to, in fulfillment of God's purposes, die and then rise from the dead. And then he makes the connection to Jesus being the Messiah because they saw Jesus alive, right? And then what does he do? He uses that great truth as a platform to call his audience to repentance and faith that they might be saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, he quotes from the prophet Joel. And then what you see at the end of the chapter, in the third section of it, is this little snapshot of what church life was like from the very beginning. So you get a very tidy little picture in this chapter, three sections. You get to see sort of, as some people like to call it, the birth of the church, if you will, when the Holy Spirit first comes. Then you get to read the first, I guess you could say, evangelistic sermon that was preached after Jesus went back to heaven so that uh, we're told thousands of people got saved that day. And then in the third section, you get to see a picture of, okay, well then what do they do once they've all gotten saved? What is church life like? And you get this picture of that as well. So it's all wrapped up in this tidy little package that we call Acts chapter 2, right? And so having prayed and having given you that little introduction, read it together with me, all right? Follow along with me as I read from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Follow along with me. Here we go. I mean, you remember where it left off, that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise, and here it comes. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a mighty rushing, a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, 
Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hallelujah indeed. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption." You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the, the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Wow, what a day. Pentecost. Pentecost was one of three Jewish holidays. There's other Jewish holidays. But this was one of three Jewish holidays that involved a long, like a week-long observance, a feast that had pilgrims coming from scattered nations all over the world to Jerusalem. There were other holidays like Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement. And, uh, you know, there was the Purim, there was Hanukkah, there were other things. But, but the three big ones were what? Passover, which is where Jesus had died. And then Pentecost, which was a harvest feast. And then there was also uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Or the Feast of Booths, which came later. Pentecost, as it's called has its name because you can see the prefix P-E-N-T-E in the front of the word, which is a, a linguistic representation of the number 50. And it's called Pentecost because it comes literally 50 days after Passover. Jesus rose from the dead near the Passover and then appeared uh, to his disciples for 40 days, and then ascended back to heaven, telling them, not many days from now, this is going to happen, right? So the difference between when Jesus rose from the dead, which was a few days after the actual Passover, and uh, the 40 days, probably about a week has gone by since Jesus ascended back into heaven, right? And we're told, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the great high point of this religious festival, they, that's the the 120 that we read about in last week's passage, they were all with one accord in one place. They were all together. We know they were in prayer. We know they had undertaken to replace Judas Iscariot in the ranks of the apostles. 
And they were praying and they were waiting and they were doing exactly what Jesus said. And then we're told in verse 2, suddenly there came a sound. And so it's interesting that the, the record of this starts with describing the sound of it. And the sound is what? It was a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the house, the whole house where they were sitting. So they're gathered together and they're in prayer. And this whole thing starts with a sound. Gee, it's windy outside, isn't it? I don't know if that's how it went or not. But it starts with the sound of wind, which actually fills the entire house. A sound from heaven. Something's going on. Then it turns from something that is heard into something that is seen. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. So what looked like divided little flames, perhaps in the exact shape of a tongue, I don't know, but what appeared to them tongues of fire came and one sat upon each of them. So in your mind, kind of place yourself there and note how this started. It started with the obedience of his disciples staying together in this place, waiting in Jerusalem for this promise to happen. And some days had to go by, right? So, so it's not like they just waited, Jesus ascended, and a couple hours later this happened. Some days have gone by, and they're waiting, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and they're praying. And then comes the sound. And you know, there must have been like looking around, what is this? And then there appears to them these tongues, and then certainly they knew something was going on. And these tongues are divided, one for each of them. And one sat on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Which I have no question is something that they felt in their hearts and in their spirits, right? So it started with something they heard, and it progressed to something that they saw, and then it became something that they felt and knew inside of them was going on. And what happened? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what are these tongues? Well, if you just stop there, it perhaps is left a little bit to the imagination of what it might have been. But the text goes on to actually give us a paragraph to describe what this would have sounded like and what was actually going on. There is sometimes great division in the modern church over this issue of tongues, and today is not the day to necessarily take that up, except for this one very important point, that we know when the Bible describes tongues, the gift of tongues, the, the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit, known as speaking in tongues, this is what it is, all right? Listen carefully. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Why? Because it was Pentecost, right? And people made pilgrimage from all over the world. There were Jews from maybe the descendants of the Israelites way back in the days of the Assyrian conquering of the northern kingdom, but especially after the Babylonians conquered and the, Israel, uh, the Jews were under the successive domination of different world empires. They were scattered throughout the world and in different languages or in different nations of the world. 
much like they are today. There are Jews still to this day, many of them in the United States, many of them in other nations of the world, many of them in their own nation, in Israel. Right? But they were scattered. And as generations passed by, and as more generations of them were born, they, of course, began to adopt speaking in the native languages of the lands where they live. Just like you would expect a Jew living in the United States to speak English, or a Jew living in Germany to speak German, or a Jew living in France to speak French, right? And so the same was true 2,000 years ago. There were in dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Just like the Lord to work like this, isn't it? That the Lord would have them all gathered in one place at one time, right? And of course, I like to think about the fact that in the mind of God, when God established these holidays way, way, way back in the days of Moses, God knew that this was going to happen exactly like this. And now came the time for God to pull it out from up his sleeve, if I may be a little uh, cavalier in my describing of that. But what a joy to the Lord this day must have been, right? For there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, and what is the sound that he's speaking of there? Perhaps it's the sound of the wind, but more more, uh, likely, almost certainly from the description that follows, he's talking of the sound of their speaking in tongues, right? Which means, look, they were in a house, There were a lot of them. There were 120 of them, which is way more than we have here right now. If you imagine this place completely full, it would probably be about 120 people. I don't know if there was something symbolic about that when the building was built. They said, let's build it so it'll fit 120. It'd be nice to have 120 people in here at a time, wouldn't it? I would like that. But but imagine like the noise that that would have made, you know? Uh, And we're told it's early in the morning, by the way, right? Because uh, one of the things it says in the chapter is that it's the third hour of the day. So we're talking like nine o'clock in the morning. And the city is stirring already. And then in this one house, first there was this mighty rushing wind sound. And then you hear these people who we know are all Galileans, right? They're all people that were uh, sort of Jesus' close acquaintances when he was on the earth from perhaps his Nazareth days, mostly from his Capernaum days, no doubt. And they're all gathered together, and then this this happens. You have all these people, and they hear all these people speaking, but there's something very notable, noteworthy, almost impossible to comprehend about it. And this is where the speaking in tongues comes in. This sound occurred. The multitude all came together, and they were confused because they all heard them speak in their own language. And the author, the human author here, Luke, does us the greatly valuable service, as the Lord led him to do, so God's the one who gets the credit, of actually listing a bunch of nations where they came from. They were all amazed and they marveled, but before it lists the nations, notice the first thing it says. Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Right? That's what made this so miraculous. Because if they were aware that there was this group of 120 Galileans who are all hanging out together for the last week, right? They would certainly automatically think to themselves, what? Well, they obviously all speak the same language, right? So, what do you have then? These are all Galileans. But they were amazed. And they said, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? 
And then, you know, it lists all these different places, Parthia, Medes, Media, the Elamites, Mesopotamians, uh, Judeans, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, which would be like modern Turkey, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene. Uh, so, so you're going into the Middle East, you're going up into Asia Minor, into Turkey, you're going down into northern Africa, you're going up into Europe, as we're told there's visitors from Rome, you're going out into the Mediterranean, as we're told there's Cretans there, you're going west and south into the Arabian Peninsula, as we're told there's Arabs there. And so there are people, I mean, draw, make, make Jerusalem a little bullseye right in, the middle of a, right in the middle of the map. And if you plot all of these places, all of these nations, it just makes this great, gigantic, big circle of geography all around Jerusalem. And all these Jews, after generations, were born in those places and grew up speaking their language. And they came, and they came into Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, they knew about this house, perhaps, where there were these 120 Galileans gathered. Right? And then there's the sound. And then they're all speaking. And they're speaking in the language of the Parthians, of the Cappadocians, of the Libyans, of the Egyptians, of the Arabs, of the Romans. And what is it that they're saying? We're told that as well. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now stop there. What does that say? Does it say anything about just the, the, the manifestation of speaking in tongues in general? I don't think that speaking in tongues was ever intended, like sometimes it appears to be, it was never intended to be something that was just for, it was never something that was intended just for like a person to do in front of their church, which happens sometimes. Clearly, this was intended to be a miraculous sign that got the attention of people who were about to what? Have the gospel preached to them. And I'm not saying that in the, uh, in the texts of the New Testament that there are no other occasions or no other evidences of speaking in tongues that might be for other purposes or for, or for edification or for ministry in some other way. But clearly here, the purpose of them speaking in tongues was to get the attention of the lost people who were gathered because they were about to have the gospel preached to them. I mean, this drew so much attention that some of them began to mock and basically say they're full of new wine. In other words, what? They're drunk. Now, I don't know about you. I've... I shouldn't say this. But before I was saved, I was only drunk one time in my life. And it was a big, I was young and I was stupid and don't ever do this. But it was bad and I got really sick. I was very young. I was only 20 years old. I was in the military. I was stationed overseas. I was bored. And so there you go. Now listen, all I'm going to tell you about that occasion, other than the fact that it was stupid and you should never do this, the only thing I'm going to tell you about that occasion is this. When I was... I did not instantly, miraculously develop the ability to speak fluent Turkish. And that's where I was. I was in Turkey. So I, 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 it didn't work that way. So the idea that like people are able to hear fluently in their own language, you know, uh, the idea that like you're accusing them of being drunk because the sound probably sounded like you had all these people speaking different languages at the same time, it might have sounded like something crazy was going on. Well, Peter, isn't it funny? Why are we even told that? I mean, what a strange little anecdote to put in, right? 
So, you, I mean, you have them there, and it's like, you know, the people gather together, they're perplexed. What is going on here? Whatever could this mean? And then we're given this little anecdote that some of the people mocked and said, they are full of new wine. Well, be it like the Lord again, to do what no man would expect. God used that little accusation to kick off the first sermon that Peter was ever going to preach. Peter's first sermon didn't start with prayer. It didn't start with reading the Bible. It didn't start with a hymn. It it started with standing up to explain why these people sound like they're drunk. So there you have it, right? Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. In other words, all you who are from around here and all of you who aren't, who have gathered for Pentecost. Let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. In other words, nine o'clock in the morning, roughly. Right? But let me tell you. So after he says, look, he doesn't dwell on it. He just says, basically, use your heads. It's nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. All right? But I am going to tell you what it is. Here's what it is. You ready? Here's what you're seeing. Jews from Judea. Jews from every nation dispersed throughout the earth, you are seeing God's word fulfilled right in front of your eyes and right in the midst of your ears. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Right? And this then becomes a fantastic sermon. It's a sermon that he preaches to them that is like all sermons should be. Here's some scripture. Listen to it. And let me explain to you how this is applicable to us right now. It becomes a wonderful little exposition of a passage from the book of Joel and a passage from the Psalms. Actually, one other verse from the Psalms as well. So two places in the book of Psalms. He's in Joel chapter 2, and then there's a passage from Psalm 16, and then there's a verse from Psalm 110. And he quotes these things, and, you know, I doubt Peter was standing there with a scroll... He had the Holy Spirit's help, and I'm guessing Peter knew his, the Word of God pretty well, having spent three years following Jesus around, right? So, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and then he quotes, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall uh, dream dreams, and on my maid, men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. He quotes some more of it, which I'll get to in a minute, but listen, here's what you're hearing. You're not hearing a bunch of drunk people. You're hearing a bunch of men and women speaking the wonderful things of God, because God has poured His Spirit out on all of them. Right? And you know, there's something to be said. Don't get hung up on the fact that the men are speaking and the women are speaking. Look, we know that later, when the Apostle Paul establishes order in the church, what he says is, uh, the, the men are the ones that are called to preach. He says, I do not permit a woman to speak or to have authority over a man. So like in the church, that's why when you come into a church in proper order, you're not going to hear a woman preaching to the entire congregation because the order which was established in creation that God made man and then he made woman, that is honored and respected by the fact that churches are ordered in that way. 
that, I mean, you still will hear women preach. They'll preach to other women. They'll teach children, right? But this prophesying that he's talking about here, what does it mean to prophesy? What he's talking about is they were just, well, it says, they were speaking the wonderful things of God. They were just standing there in all of these different languages, giving honor and praise to God, all of them. And Peter says, this is what Joel said. In the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And then just, you know, Joel repeats it and Peter repeats it as well. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. That's what you're listening to. You're not listening to a bunch of drunk Galileans. You're listening to a fulfillment of God's holy word. In other words, the last days have come. Now, here's what's marvelous about this passage of scripture. In addition to that, he goes on to say, still quoting from the same passage in Joel, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Right? So, you have what? You have in the beginning of the passage, you have Joel saying and Peter quoting, these are the last days. It's, this is that which Joel said. You, uh, it will come to pass in the last days that I'm going to do this. But then, notice the second half of the passage jumps all the way ahead to a bunch of stuff that hasn't happened yet. So, in other words, the first half of Joel's prophecy, the Spirit being poured out on men's servants and maidservants, and they will prophesy, that was beginning to be fulfilled that day and is still being fulfilled now. But the ultimate culmination, and this is why, this is why I say you've got to read and study and be up on like the minor prophets in the Old Testament, because so many of them, not so many, all of them, a hundred percent of them say, refer to, preach things that haven't occurred yet. The second part of this has, it all reads like it's one thing. And it is all one thing. But it's one thing that so far has taken 2,000 years to fulfill. God is still pouring out His Spirit on His men servants, on His maid servants, and they are prophesying. That is, they are going and they are taking the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere in the world. And that's what we're supposed to be. We that's what Jesus said. You'll receive my spirit and you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, everywhere in the world. And the second part of this has not come to pass yet. What? Wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapors of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. That aspect of it hasn't occurred yet. This pouring out of His Spirit on His men's servants and maid servants that they may prophesy has been going on for 2,000 years. But the day is going to come when that's going to come to a stop. It's why, it's why many pastors and theologians have seen fit to refer to this as describing the church age leading up until the return of Christ and His millennial kingdom. This preaching of the gospel 
by his men servants and his maid servants as the Holy Spirit leads them is going to go on and on and on until the time comes which God has already determined when it ends and Christ comes back. And, you know, you can read the book of Revelation which in great detail expands upon and corroborates a lot of these wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, the moon into blood. We read about it last week, didn't we? When Jesus ascended back to heaven, what did Zechariah say? The Lord is going to come and he's going to stand right on the spot that he left from and the Mount of Olives will split in two. That is the ushering in of what is called here the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, so it started at Pentecost and the second half of this hasn't come to pass yet, which means what? We're still in the middle of it. We're still supposed to be living out what Paul is describing here. Not Paul, Peter. What Peter is speaking of here. We're still supposed to be living it out. We're still supposed to be. Listen, brothers and sisters. I don't know what you think Christianity is. I don't know what you think Christians are supposed to do. But we're supposed to be filled, all of us, men servants and maid servants. That covers all of you. We're supposed to be, in the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the gospel to the world. That's still going on. And then the great and terrible day of the Lord the great and awesome day of the Lord will come and He will return. This is mankind's season of opportunity to respond to the gospel and receive God's wonderful salvation. And Peter stands up and we, because we have the rest of the New Testament and all the time we have to study, and we have the benefit of the last history, 2,000 years, the last 2,000 years of history, we can maybe see with a little clearer picture the scope of it all, that these people couldn't. Peter just spoke this to them in a way that would have made them think, what? The Lord's coming back any day, right? Because, you know, as they're listening to this, it just reads seamlessly. The Holy Spirit is being poured out, my sons and daughters, my, uh, my manservants and my maidservants will prophesy. And then, it just seamlessly it says, there's going to be wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath. The great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. They would have sensed and felt in them that it was imminent. Well, you and I, listen, if they then sensed and felt that it was imminent, how much more you and I 2,000 years later should sense and know and be committed to the notion that the Lord's return is very, very close. And that ought to bring you joy. It ought to bring you hope. It ought to bring you encouragement. And it ought to spur you to open your mouth and speak to others of Christ. This is the life of Christians. Look at verse the, the last part of it in verse 21 is what? And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. True then, true now. True all the way up until that day. If you hear the gospel of Christ, whoever calls upon the name, whoever responds to what it is God is doing, 
God has poured out His Spirit on His servants and they are going through all the earth preaching the Gospel and whoever hears and responds by calling upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes? Yes! Sometimes I think it's not they who were drunk. It's we who are drunk. They seemed like they were drunk because of their zeal and their excitement. But we're really the ones who are drunk because of our worldliness and our carnality and we feel like we're dead. And we get sucked into just the mundane of life. And we hear a song like, I can only imagine what it's going to be like when I'm with you. Am I going to dance before you? Am I just going to bow before you and be quiet? Listen, that's where our hearts need to be all the time. Not drunk on this world. So that these things, they don't even move us. We hear these things and we're able to just... How is that possible? How is it possible? Man, when we hear these things, it ought to light a fire in us. Like those tongues of fire that sat on them. Amen? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What's our job? In the power of His Spirit, go preach the name of the Lord. Go preach the matchless and wonderful name of Jesus. Tell people. Tell people. Invite them. As the book of Jude says, save some as if you're snatching them from the fire. Invite them to come here and listen. Don't, don't you have people in your life? I don't... I, 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 I don't know where everybody's at, but I know for me, there are people in my life that I wish would listen to these things that I'm saying. Aren't there people in your life that you wish would hear these things? Go out and grab them and bring them in. Hey, come and listen to the words of the Bible. I don't want to go through my whole life and then get to the end. And when I get to the end be faced with some devastating realization that I was surrounded by people my whole life who never heard a word of this or were never once encouraged to take a look at it, were never once encouraged to read it or listen to it or come and hear. That would be a tragedy. God says, I'll pour out my spirit on my men's servants and my maidservants, servants and they shall prophesy. Well, Peter takes off from there. It's a, it's a meaty sermon, isn't it? What Peter's doing here, quoting that scripture. Now he takes off from that scripture. You see verse 22? And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He launches right into Jesus. After he quotes from Joel, he, goes, he gets right to the subject. Because what's the subject? Jesus. That's the issue. Jesus is the great issue of the entire world. Not taxes, not building walls and borders, not who's going to be the next president. The issue of issues facing the world is Jesus of Nazareth. 
That has always been true and will always be true. Men of Israel, hear these words. Ready? Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you. In other words, God showed you who he was by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you also know. Because the word concerning Jesus had well spread among all of the Jews of the world, certainly those who came to Pentecost only uh, a month and a half after he had been crucified, risen from the dead. They certainly knew the story well. It was well circulated throughout Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and the people came and they heard about this one that they thought maybe was the Messiah. They heard that there were these followers from Galilee who believed that they had seen him risen from the dead, and there was still a concerning Jesus as much as the Pharisees tried to suppress it, tried to pay the soldiers to say, oh, the body was stolen away, etc., etc., etc. No. Peter says, you know very well that God did all kinds of miracles through this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now listen, I'm going to tell you who Jesus... Peter basically stands there and says, first of all, here's what you hear. No, we're not drunk. This is God's promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out and us preaching and prophesying. Now let me tell you what we're going to preach and we're going to prophesy. Jesus of Nazareth, who God showed you, God identified to you by all the wonderful, miraculous signs. It says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. What an amazing statement that is. Right? Let me tell you what that means. Because the people, the religious leaders especially, thought that they had dealt with this great problem by getting rid of Jesus. By persuading the crowds and persuading Pilate and persuading the Romans and then Judas Iscariot betraying him for 30 pieces of silver and arresting him and handing him over. They thought they had dealt with the problem. Guess what? No, 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 no. What Peter is saying when it says being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, what does that mean? Everything that happened to Jesus happened because God planned it that way. You understand that? And listen. The crucifix, the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus, that was not some failure. That was God's plan all along. And Jesus himself knew it, which is why when he prayed in the garden, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? Because Jesus knew and angels came and ministered to him that this was his mission, was to call, was to come and to go and to do this. As difficult and as hard as it was that he prayed to God like that, this was his mission, was to come and to go and to die. The Romans accomplished nothing. The Jewish religious leaders accomplished nothing. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, God accomplished everything. Hallelujah! I love that phrase. Being delivered by you? Being delivered by the Romans? Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands. In other words, they're still, what he's saying is, you're still responsible for what you did, even though it was God's plan all along. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, look at this, whom God raised up. Ooh, right? Having loosed the pains of death, 
because it was not possible that he should be held by. Now, what happens here is this amazing little teaching from Psalm 16 to show something very important that, that like, we, we were told even in the resurrection story, like when they ran to the grave, we told it, we read it from the Gospel of John, that Peter and John, they ran to the grave and they didn't fully understand. Remember in the text, it actually said they didn't fully understand yet the whole dying, burying, being risen from the dead. He gets it now, right? Because he understands that it was, it said right in God's word that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. So he says, it says, David says concerning him, I, now, now, so David is the author of Psalm 16, the human author, right? So David writes this and he's writing as if it would seem from his own perspective. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you did not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, the word Hades there, Hades is a word that literally refers to the place of the dead, or that is the state of being dead. Some people equate it with hell. That's not correct. The, the word Hades refers to being dead. All right? And so what he's saying there is, you will not leave my soul dead. Right? Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, which speaks perhaps of the decay of the body after it dies. But the idea, the point is, you're not going to leave me dead. So David writes a song, a psalm, and says to God, Lord, you're not going to leave me dead. Well, Peter, all full of the Holy Spirit, says what? Men and brethren, let me just say it plain to you, concerning David, who wrote that psalm, he's dead. So he wrote this song that said, you're not going to leave me dead. You're not going to allow me to see corruption. But there's his tomb. His tomb is here with us to this day. Which means what? David was not speaking personally of himself. He was speaking of somebody else. He was speaking of someone who would be identified with him. Right? And they all understood that. Now, look what he says in verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet... See, David was not just writing that of himself. He was writing prophetically. Being a prophet and knowing that God, here's the key, God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So David knew and everyone in Israel knew and everyone who reads the Bible knows that God promised David that one of his descendants would always sit on David's throne. God promised David, I have established your throne forever. And one day, one of your descendants who's going to rise up and sit on that throne is going to be the anointed one, is going to be the Messiah. You see what Peter's doing? He's taking this text and he's showing them that Psalm 16 was not David writing about himself because there's his tomb, right? No, it was David writing about the Messiah. And guess who the Messiah is? Yeah, the one, the one he's been introducing. Because why? You see what he's doing? He's making a case. It's a great apologetic sermon for the Jewish mind, basically. He's showing them what? 
He's showing them, look, God showed you that Jesus wasn't just some ordinary guy with all the signs and all the miracles and all the wonders. And, you know, you took him by lawless hands and turned him over to be crucified, but that was God's plan all along. And now we have this passage of Scripture that says what? David wrote not concerning himself that he wasn't going to stay dead. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, in other words, one of his descendants, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. So, 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 So Peter is making the case that Psalm 16 is about the resurrection of the Messiah. That his soul, his soul, was not left in Hades. Because David's tomb is still right there. Where's Jesus' tomb? You know, if you go to Israel today, there's like three different locations that people say are Jesus' tomb. Nobody knows for sure. You know why? I mean, what's the easiest way to mark somebody's grave? There's like, there's like, they're in it. Right? So, so nobody can say for sure where Christ's grave, where Jesus' grave was, because there's nothing in it. Because Jesus rose from the dead. You understand? So, uh, look at this. Verse 32. In, at the end of verse 31, in case I didn't see that clearly enough, Peter is saying that David is saying, his soul was not left in Hades. His flesh did not see corruption. Who? the Messiah. Now, in verse 32, what does he do? He ties it all together. He's made the case that Jesus was attested to you by God through miracles and signs and wonders to be no ordinary person, right? Then he makes the case that the Bible says that the Messiah was going to die but not stay dead. He was going to rise from the dead. Then in verse 32, he ties it together. This Jesus... God has raised up. All right? Now, everybody, put yourself back there 2,000 years ago. Ready? Oh, oh, by the way, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all what? Witnesses. Witnesses. We're all witnesses. In other words, that whole crowd of people, they saw Jesus. They saw him die, and they saw him alive. They saw him on the cross. They saw him in the house with the wounds in his side and in his hands and in his feet. They saw him carry the cross to Calvary. They saw him fly into the sky just a week earlier than this. So they're standing there and they're like putting it all together. This Jesus God is raised up. So if the Bible says that the Messiah would not stay dead but would rise from the dead... And we saw Jesus perform all these miracles and then die and then rise from the dead. Then the conclusion is what? Jesus is what? The Messiah. See, that's David's case. He's proving to them, using the scripture, that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, hook it back to the beginning of it. We're not drunk. God has poured out His Spirit on His men's servants and His maid servants that they may prophesy. In whatever language we need to say it in, we say to you, Jesus is the Messiah. How's that for a sermon to stand not in Fellowship Bible Church, 
to stand in Jerusalem at Pentecost and stand there in front of hundreds, thousands of people and say, the scripture teaches that the Messiah would rise and we saw Jesus rise. Jesus is the Messiah. You think he's not the Messiah because he died. The Bible says he was going to die. And the Bible says that he would not stay dead. And we saw him alive. Jesus didn't fail. Jesus succeeded in ways that we could not even see. But now we can. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, David didn't ascend into heaven, but we stood there a week ago and watched Jesus ascend into heaven. We know who the Messiah is. And what's the conclusion? Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, look at this, whom you crucified, both Lord and what? Messiah, Christ. What a great sermon. And you know what? They got it. You know how I know they got it? See verse 37? Now when they heard this, they asked among themselves, is this guy done yet? Is this finished yet? Can we go now? No. When they heard this, what? They were cut to the heart. It's as if in their spirit they were stabbed. They were convicted. What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit would do? He would convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. They were cut to the heart and oh, look what they said. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter tells him what? Repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And listen, I know that a person doesn't get saved by being baptized. This is where systematic theology and understanding your Bible comes in. We know that we are saved by God's grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But here's what you need to understand. The reason this is written like that is because baptism was completely intertwined with one believing in the early days of the church. That's why Acts chapter 8, when Philip is speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch, and it says that he started at the scripture that the eunuch was reading in his chariot, which was Isaiah 53. And he preached Jesus to him. As they go down the water, the eunuch asked him what question? Look, there's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And what did Philip say to him? If you believe, you may. And what did the eunuch respond? I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then yelled something to the effect of, Halt! 
and the chariot, which no doubt was a grand caravan, stopped. Not the van, but, but a big caravan of different things because he, he was the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. He wasn't traveling by himself. Stop! And then they go down into the water and he baptizes them. Right? So there's your car jokes, by the way. We know the apostles drove a Honda because they were in one accord. And we, know, and, we, and we know the Ethiopians drove Dodges because they were in a grand caravan. Forget it. So, so in any case, in any case, baptism was completely intertwined. The way that somebody responded when they believed was that they got baptized. 2,000 years removed, that's gotten a little out of kilter, right? We'll have, because what happens now is People are told in church services, bow your head, close your eyes, raise your hand, walk down the aisle, pray the prayer. And the way to respond to the gospel, the way to, the way to respond to the gospel is to repent and believe. Jesus said that, right? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. In the gospel of Mark chapter 1. It's like the first thing that's recorded that he said in public, right? But So we know the response to receive salvation is to repent and believe the gospel. But then the outward thing that people did when they believed the gospel was they got baptized when they believed. And I I think that's how it should still be. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to be baptized in water because it is an outward expression of your faith in Jesus and your identification with Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Right? And so we're told here, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And look at the last part. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You hear all this going on? You hear all these people speaking in different tongues? You hear all these people praising God? You you see all these men and women prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit and preaching to other people about Jesus? If you believe, you're going to receive that too. And that's still true today. If you come to Jesus and believe on Him with all of your heart, not from anything that I can do, no waving of my arms or anything like that, from on high. Listen, Jesus described it like this. People who are born of the Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. If you receive Jesus, if you believe on Him with all of your heart, His Holy Spirit will come into you. You know what you ought to do? You ought to do what Joel said, what Peter quoted earlier in the sermon. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Turn to Jesus in faith. Believe that He is the Son of God. Believe that He died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. Cry out to Him like that thief on the cross did. Lord, in Your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, I promise you today you'll be with me in paradise. Cry out to Jesus. Lord, remember me. Cry out to Jesus. Lord, I know. I believe this. Lord, save me from my sins. Please, Lord. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Him by faith, you will receive from heaven, from on high, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll know it and you will be sealed unto the great day of the Lord, the day of redemption, which is talked about in this passage of Scripture. And there's no other way to be saved. 
That's all we have time for today. We're not going to sing the last hymn. Let's all stand up together. Is that two weeks in a row I did that? Cut the last hymn out? That's bad. Stand up together.